Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for, for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised they were naked. So they sewed fig, fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not, not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through, toilful, through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said to the man, said, said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. <coughs>
Well, I'm not uh, sure what you normally do for a family Christmas, but uh, my family always gets together. We get together with my cousins on Christmas Day, uh, sorry, on Boxing Day, and the tradition is to play backyard cricket. Uh, and we've been doing it for years, every birthday, uh, every, every uh, Christmas or Boxing Day, whatever it was, we'd always get out and play uh, backyard cricket. And so this Boxing Day, this one passed, my brother-in-law enthusiastically had mowed a pitch uh, on his back, back lawn uh, and he'd cleared the uh, surroundings and we trotted out uh, to play our backyard cricket. Well, let me just say it was a less than impressive display. Uh, it wasn't the greatest moment uh, in our lives. There were uh, wayward deliveries. There were uh, dropped catches. There were bad reflexes. There were uh, windy woofs outside the off stump. There was my brother hobbling around. He'd bruised his heel playing basketball a few weeks before and he was hobbling around <laughs> trying to field, trying to bowl, trying to bat. One thing was clear, our glory days were behind us. But as we played that game, I was struck quite powerfully by the idea that none of us are getting any younger. In uh, youth, you convince yourself that the trajectory is up, faster, higher, stronger, until you get to a point, I think, depending on how pessimistic you are, and you suddenly realise that your trajectory is down, slower, shorter, weaker. But why is the world like that? Why on such a fun day are we struck by our own mortality and by the brokenness of the world that we live in? Well, if you've been here over the last three weeks, uh, that question will be even more pressing. We've been looking at the beginning of Genesis and we've seen how God created a good world, a marvellous world, a beautiful world. But why, if God created a world so beautiful, so wonderful, so, so lovely, why is our world, the world that we live in, why is our world not that good? Well, Genesis 3 is about answering that question and it tells us what happened to turn God's good world into the world that we live in today. The account of what happened starts with a talking serpent The serpent is called the serpent. That is, it's a particular figure. In the New Testament, Satan is described as a serpent. In Revelation 12, Satan is described as that ancient serpent. And it seems that what's happening here in Genesis 3 is that this this snake is acting as, if you like, the mouthpiece of Satan. And he says to Eve, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" Satan's first ploy in trying to deceive uh, Adam and Eve was in seeking to, to question the words of God. Did God really say that? I can't believe that's what God said. He certainly couldn't, uh, couldn't have meant that, could he? He certainly wouldn't want you to be unhappy. Is that what God really said? To the snake's question, uh, Eve replies that God had said we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. 
which is not actually what God had said entirely. God had said that they couldn't eat, but he hadn't said, you must not touch it. It's hard to know whether Eve is uh, adding in that extra bit accidentally, that is, she'd misremembered what God had said and that led her astray, or whether she was being intentional, that is, she was making God's command to appear more strict than it really was, to kind of paint God, if you like, as the ultimate party pooper. There is perhaps just the beginnings of that seed of rebellion against God. And now the snake begins to cast even more doubt on what God has said. He says, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. As one person has pointed out, the first doctrine denied in the Bible is judgment. They will die if they disobey God. Not straight away, but death came into the world. But you see, Satan is wise enough to know that sin seems so much more attractive in a world without judgment and in a world without death. Satan's lies also a kind of a half-truth. Their eyes will be opened to know good and evil. God acknowledges that later on in the chapter in verse 22. The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. What Satan had said would happen is kind of what happened. But far from knowing good and evil being a good thing, it becomes the source of their suffering. They become not just to know of evil, that is to know that evil exists, as God knows that evil exists, they come to be evil. They know evil experientially. It's part of the fabric of who they are. They know how to do good, but they also know how to do wrong, how to hurt each other, how to hurt other people. It's a kind of a bait and switch. You think you're getting one thing, but you're actually getting another. You think sin leads to a better life. Here it is, painted in all its glamour. But actually the life that you get is a miserable life. Satan also appeals to Eve's pride. He offers her what she most deeply desires and what is the most unobtainable thing, to be like God or even to be God. Satan says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's an offer that Satan still makes to us today, even in the most unlikely places. Even the Lion King, of all things, sells us the message. In the song, I Just Can't Wait to Be King, Simba sings these words. No one's saying, do this. No one's saying, see here. No one's saying, stop that. No one's saying, uh, see here. Free to run around all day, free to do it all my way. It's the offer of being like God, in control. No one to tell me what to do. Forget talking snakes, we have singing lions giving us the message that Satan gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And like Eve, we take the bait. She looks at the fruit, she sees that it's good, she sees that it's good for food, she sees that it's a delight to the eyes, 
She sees that it could open her eyes to new things and new experiences and new wonders. And she takes it and she eats it. And she gives it to her husband to eat as well. It wasn't a magical fruit. It wasn't as though it had some kind of thing in it that that ruined their lives. No, it was just the act, just the simple act of doing that which God had told her not to do, the simple act of wanting to be like God that cost her and us everything. Like Eve, we look at sin and it looks like the good option. It looks like the delight to the eyes. It looks like it will make us wise and clever and special. And we take it. And we reject God. We don't have to wonder what would have happened if we ourselves had been there in the garden, uh, in Eve's place. Because daily we have the answer to that question. Daily we take the fruit because daily we reject God. Stephen Fry was recently asked in an interview what he would say if he was confronted by God. He replied, I'd say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world to which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. But note the underlying assumption that if there's a problem with the world, the problem is God, not us. And Genesis 3 says that that's the wrong way around. That the problem is us and not God. Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. The problem is that we want to be our own God. But what are the consequences of that? Well, there's a number of consequences that Genesis 3 tells us about. The first consequence is that Adam and Eve realise that they're naked. They sew fig leaves together to hide themselves from each other. Uh, As one person points out, fig leaves are probably not the best thing for hiding yourself. There's there's a lot of cutaways in the fig leaf. Uh, And I think, in, in a sense, that shows the futility of what they're trying to do. When God calls out to them, they hide in the bushes. Their sense of nakedness and exposure is actually a symptom of a deeper problem. They feel exposed and ashamed of what they've done. They're ashamed of how they've sinned against God. The first consequence is uh, that they feel naked and ashamed of what they've done. The second consequence is that they blame each other and they blame God. When God asks them if they've eaten from the tree uh, that he told them not to eat from, Adam, first of all, blames his wife and God. So he says in verse 12, The woman that you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's her fault and you gave her to me. Then Eve blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And so begins the tyranny of self-justification and finger-pointing which corrodes our world. Whose fault is it? It's your fault or his fault or her fault. It's not my fault. We even blame the animals. My dog ate my homework. It's, It's funny but actually kind of sadly true. And when those excuses don't work, 
we blame God. Whose fault is it that my life is a ruin? It's God's fault. When our life goes well, we're so quick to claim the credit for ourselves. And when our life goes poorly, we're so quick to blame God. So they're the first two consequences. But in addition to those kind of immediate effects, God also announces three curses that are consequences of uh, the serpent's deceit and Adam and Eve's rebellion. Well, the first of those curses is on the serpent. We'll come to that one a little bit later. The second is on the woman. God says to the woman in verse 16, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The first part of the curse is that childbearing becomes more difficult and becomes painful. Uh, We talked a little bit more about that last week. Uh, It's hard to get pregnant. And when people do, there's morning sickness and labour is hardly a walk in the park, I'm told. Uh, I'm just taking people's word for that. Although I think some of, the, some of the domestic chores that I have to put up with are also quite difficult, frankly. Uh, but possibly not as hard. I think the fact that it's called labour is a bit of a, a clue that it's, it's harder than it looks. And the whole process of raising children is difficult as well. It's a hard slog. It's a lifetime role. One of the most fundamental aspects of what it means to be a woman is now a challenge and a source of pain and a source of sadness. It's still a source of joy, but it's also a source of pain and sadness and sorrow. The second part of the curse God announces on the woman has to do with the husband-wife marriage relationship. God says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. What it means that a wife's desire will be for her husband becomes a little bit clearer if you read on into the next chapter, into chapter 4, where God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. It's the same word, it desires to have you, but you must master it. So, So in other words, desire is something like desire to control, desire to master. We saw last week there's a sense in which there's a a special role that God has given to men, a kind of a, a loving leadership in marriage. But God says that good ordering of the marriage relationship is now a source of tension and bitterness rather than opportunity for love and for self-sacrifice. She wants to control him and he tries to control her by force. Marriage, what was supposed to be a wonderful gift from God, becomes a battleground. We were made for marriage. We were made for these deep relationships. But now marriage is a place of trouble and discontent. There are disagreements, there are fights, there are competing hopes, there are competing dreams. Sometimes people are embarrassed when their marriage is going going badly. They're embarrassed to ask for help. But we ought not to be embarrassed because the Bible says that that's the situation of every marriage, of every relationship because of the effects of sin. And those relationship difficulties spread out from marriage into every other area of life. Parents and children, friends, colleagues, employers and employees, all those relationships are broken because of the sin in our world. 
God, God curses the, the serpent, he curses the woman, he curses man. He turns thirdly to the man and says, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food and until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. The first part of the curse on man is that the ground is cursed. Creation itself becomes corrupted and distorted as a result of our rebellion against God. In Romans 8, Paul says that the whole creation groans as in the pains of childbirth, longing for kind of God to remake creation into what it was meant to be. As one astute person has observed, we often live with a theology of creation, but without a theology of the fall. That is, we believe wholeheartedly that God created the world good, but we forget that it's distorted by sin. One of the most obvious ways that plays out is in the general belief that if something is natural, it must be better. Unprocessed foods, natural foods, natural colours, natural soaps, natural medicines, it often seems as though the only argument you need to make for why something is better is that it's natural. But as my sister likes to say, she's a scientist. And my sister likes to say, that's not just bad science, it's bad theology. It may or may not be true that some natural things are better than unnatural things, but it's important to realise that the argument can't be settled by simply saying, it's natural, therefore it must be better. It can't be settled by that because even though the world was created good, it's now distorted by sin. And it's not easy to say yes and no, yes and no, on the basis of its naturalness or unnaturalness. We live with a theology of creation, but without a theology of the fall. The world is distorted by sin. The second part of the curse on man is that because, uh, of, the, because of sin, because of that breakdown in creation, work has now become unpleasant and hard. So work was always intended by God to be a good thing, a good uh, part of the creation. But now work is a chore. I don't know if anyone watches Grand Designs. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great show. I always think Phil's Kevin MacLeod. But anyway... Uh, it's a show where people set out to build these incredible or ridiculous houses, depending on your point of view. But so many things go wrong. They go to dig the foundations and they discover that there's this you know, enormous rock bed underneath that uh, is going to take them eight months to dig through. Or they discover that there's uh, archaeological artefacts that uh, no one's discovered before and so they have to uh, put it on hold while those are uh, examined. They go to pour the concrete and the truck can't get up the driveway. And then they go to start putting up the frame but someone's made the wrong measurements and the bits don't fit together. And then they want to do the brickwork or the cladding but there's inclement weather. It's the worst weather that they've had in England for 30 years. And then they want to put in the windows, but they've been delayed at the factory and then the owners run out of money and they end up having to sack the architect and the building company goes out of business and you get to the end of the program and, you, and you're exhausted. 
They're just stressed. They're just living in your house. It's ridiculous. And every week I say to them, don't do it, don't do it. It's madness. Anyway, and yet I go back, and yet I go back. But the point is, all those frustrations are the result of sin. Doing, building, creating, developing are still great fun, aren't they? I mean, it's great to have a vision of, of these wonderful things that we can do with the world that God has given us. And yet, they're also frustrating and hard. I mean, who doesn't get to the end of their project and go, wow, that really didn't turn out as well as I'd hoped? The third part of the curse on mankind is death. We die, we work, we eat, we keep working, and then we die again. We die. Satan promised Eve that it wouldn't happen, but he was lying. It did happen. We die, the people we love die, and the Bible says it was never meant to be like that. We were never meant to have to go to the side of a grave and lower the people that we love most into the earth. It's a distortion of sin and the consequence of our rebellion against God. The last consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion comes a few verses, uh, in the last few verses of chapter 3. Verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The last consequence is separation from God. Adam and Eve knew God, they walked with God, they spoke with God, God spoke with them, but now our fellowship with God is damaged and destroyed. Even while we're alive, we're dead. We're separated from God, which is a kind of a living death. We're separated from the one thing in life that really matters. The most precious, the most wonderful, the most beautiful thing in all the world, God, is now distant and hard to reach. What are the consequences of our sin? Shame. Blaming each other, blaming God, the breakdown of marriages and relationships, pain in the good tasks that God has given, death and separation from God. That's the consequences. And in a sense, all those things are meant to be signposts of the fact that the world, that there's something wrong with the world, and the problem is that we've tried to replace God with ourselves. The problem is sin, the consequences are death and disease and decay. But lastly, tucked away in this chapter amid the chaos of the first sin, there's also a glimmer of hope. The curse on the serpent uh, is actually a promise of hope for humanity. God says to the snake in verse 14, because you've done this, cursed you above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
Remember that the serpent is an instrument of Satan, of all that's opposed to God. When God says that the snake will eat dust, he's not saying that the serpent will eat dust as in eat dust rather than mice or whatever else snakes eat. He's saying it's a, it's a picture of victory of, or, or, of defeat for the, for the serpent. There's also this suggestion of ongoing war between Satan and Eve's offspring. And there's a promise in that of victory over Satan. Satan will strike the heel of Eve's offspring, but Eve's offspring will crush Satan's head. It's the promise of an ongoing war between humanity and Satan. But it's more than that. The word offspring is a singular, it's one person. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It refers to one person, one descendant of Eve, whose heel Satan will strike and who will crush Satan's head. And as you track through Genesis, there's this constant hunt for that one offspring. In chapter 4, Cain and Abel are born. Will, will one of those be the one who wins the battle over Satan? No, Satan crouches at Cain's door and he ends up killing his own brother. And at the end of chapter 4, Seth is born. Will Seth be the one? No, he dies. And chapter 5 gives a long list of descendants. Will it be Enosh? No, he dies. Kenan? No, he dies. Mahalel? No, he died as well. Enoch? No, he walked with God and went to be with God, a glimmer of hope, but still just rescue for one man, not all of humanity. And on it goes through Genesis. Noah? No. Abraham? No. Isaac? No. Jacob or Esau? No, none of them. The 12 brothers? No, it's not them. Moses? Joshua? The judges, Saul, David, Josiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, on it goes through the whole Old Testament. Will this one be the one? Maybe this is the one. Until at the end of a long list of maybes, Jesus comes. And on the cross, Satan strikes his heel. And he thinks that he's won. But Jesus crushed Satan's head. A man, the offspring of Eve, but no ordinary man. God come in the flesh to do what no ordinary person could do, win the war. He wandered in the desert, he was tempted like by Satan, but unlike us, he didn't give in. He faced the wrath of God on the cross, but he didn't turn away from his father. He suffered the justice of God meant for us. He took our guilt and our shame and covered us up. He did what the fig leaves couldn't do and covered us in the robe of his righteousness. And he rose again from the dead. He conquered the death that came because of our sin. And he disarmed Satan and he disarmed Satan's accusations. If you've been watching the uh, news lately, You'll have seen a lot of reporting on the two men, Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran, who are facing execution uh, in Indonesia for drug trafficking. There's been so much talk about their rehabilitation, 
uh, and their transformation. And it's, it's extraordinary, the way that those men have changed. But what's largely been left unsaid, I think, in the news coverage that I have seen, is they've said nothing about how those men have been transformed. By all accounts, they've been transformed by Jesus. In an article from the Bible Society 18 months ago, they wrote, Andrew still bears the scars from that life that led him to his current predicament, but his face provides insight into the new life he has found in Christ. His smile is infectious, his manner warm and friendly, his conversation topic, Jesus. Currently, Andrew leads the Christian church inside Karabakan prison. From preaching to worship leading, pastoring to evangelism, he uses his days in service of the Lord to ensure the longevity of the ministry in the prison, that is, after they've been executed. Andrew is training leaders to carry on the work of the Lord in Karabakan. Writing of the day he was convicted of drug trafficking, Andrew Chan wrote, I went to my court hearing and they convicted me and they gave me the death penalty. When I got back to my cell, I said, God, I asked you to set me free, not kill me. God spoke to me and said, Andrew, I have set you free from the inside out. I've given you life. From that moment on, I haven't stopped worshipping him. I had never sung before, never led worship until Jesus set me free. Facing death, the curse of sin, and yet life through Jesus Christ. Deceived by Satan, but Jesus crushed Satan's head and robbed his armoury that he held against them. Jesus has destroyed the power of sin and the power of death. What's wrong with the world? As G.K. Chesterton once wrote, I am. Me and my sin and you and your sin and us and our sin. And no one can deal with our sin except Jesus Christ. But God promised an offspring, an offspring who has come. And if you trust in him, you will never be put to shame. I'm going to pray a prayer now. Uh, And if you'd like to pray along with me, you can do that in your own heart. Uh, It's a prayer of acknowledgement really, of our own sin and our own need of Jesus Christ. So let's pray together. Dear God, I know that the problem with the world is me and my sin. I know that my sin keeps me from you. But I can also see that you sent Jesus to rescue from sin all those who put their trust in him. Father, I trust him. Please forgive me through his death on the cross. His death on the cross in my place. And please help me to follow him. Father, we also pray for Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran, our brothers in Christ. And Lord, we ask that as they face execution, that their trust in Jesus 
would be a light to those in prison with them and a light to those in the world who don't know Christ. A light to those who face death and the consequences of sin and a light to those who don't yet know that Jesus has conquered death and brought light to the world. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks, Carl. The gospel is good.